You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. He led a courageous career in law enforcement for more than four decades, driven by a commitment to investigate public corruption. He performed his duties relentlessly, all while coping with the creeping loss of his sight. Eyes of Justice is a memoir of one man's faith and devotion to duty who refused to be defined by his disability. Joan Jacobson is the co-author of Wise Up and a longtime local reporter. We are so thrilled to have them both here tonight, so please give them a warm welcome. Uh, I'm going to speak for a few minutes, and uh, then I'm going to read the prologue, and then Jim will talk for a while and answer questions. Uh, first, I wanted to thank uh, quite a few people who helped us with this memoir. I'm not going to name every one of them, but. Uh, it was a group effort to, to really get it done. Uh, Deb Weiner, who's here, was our copy editor. Bill Berry, our photographer. Uh, our book designers were uh, Brian McGargy and Chris Broussard. Jim's sister, Esther, helped with memories from her early childhood. The prosecutors and the investigator from the theft and perjury case against Mayor Sheila Dixon helped us piece together the complex narrative of that case that make up three chapters in the book. We wanted to tell a story about the Dixon investigation that no one had read before. So we sought out the memories of prosecutors Bob Warbaugh, Mike McDonough, Shelley Glenn, and investigator John Pollux. Many others read early chapters in the book's final draft. I especially want to thank Jim's wife, Laura, who more than anyone helped us complete this book. She read early chapters and the final manuscript as many times as we did and made corrections and helped choose photos and write captions. I have known Jim for a really long time and he, uh, he called me in 2016 and asked if I thought his life story was worth a memoir and I said absolutely. We started to talk and he started to write his memories and sent them to me. And we spent about a year with me interviewing him and Jim writing, and then we started writing the chapters in earnest. Uh, and the result is, is many memoirs in one book. First, it's Jim's personal memoir of contracting a medical condition as a child that would eventually lead to blindness. Uh, it's about the early deaths of his parents and his struggle with his Catholic beliefs. It's also a Baltimore police memoir uh, and Jim was adamant in showing both the good and bad of the Baltimore Police Department, describing what it was like working with inept and corrupt and racist cops, and also learning investigative techniques from some of Baltimore's finest. Other chapters tell the sordid details of his three and a half years as a deep covert on the city's block, the red light district, where he pretended to resign as a cop so he could hang out at the city's strip clubs 
to find out if the Philly mob had infiltrated Baltimore's organized crime. The bulk of the book, however, is about political and public corruption and the creation of the Maryland Office of the State Prosecutor, where Jim worked as chief investigator for almost 40 years. Jim and I believe this is the first book about Maryland political corruption in, in nearly 50 years since the days of Spiro Agnew and Marvin Mandel. We think Eyes of Justice is particularly revealing because it tells the story of political corruption from the point of view of the investigator. So now I'm going to read the prologue, which should give you a better idea of what the book's about. My alarm was set for 4.45 AM, but I suspected I awakened earlier. I felt on the night table for my talking wristwatch and listened. It was only 2.37 AM. I tried to fall back to sleep, but it was hopeless. Not wanting to wake my wife, Laura, I quietly pulled off the covers and firmly planted my feet on the carpet. I felt for the bureau, then the wall that led to the bathroom. I didn't bother to turn on the lights. That would be silly. Once showered and shaved, I opened the door. Laura was awake. Should I call you an early bird or a night bird that doesn't sleep, she asked. Yeah, I sighed. I guess you haven't had a chance to lay out my clothes, have you? The night before, I told Laura I would need my black suit, a white button-down Oxford shirt, and my red power tie. She knew nothing about the raid planned for this morning and knew not to ask. Very sensitive matters, I always believed, must operate on a need-to-know basis. In my many years in law enforcement, I have become a master at keeping secrets. When I worked as a deep covert for the Baltimore Police Department, I did not even reveal my true identity to a previous wife. For two years, she thought I was a taxi driver. <laughs> when Laura walked into the kitchen, she said, what, no coffee? Not this morning. I would appreciate it if you would drive me to the office. Once we arrived in Towson, Laura parked. As I did every day, I waited for her to grab my arm to walk me to the elevator, where she punched the button for the fourth floor. We arrived at the office of the Maryland State Prosecutor, the agency that investigates political corruption, theft of government funds, and election law violations. I was the agency's chief investigator. As we said our goodbyes, I heard Laura's voice turn back to me. I'm thinking that if you told me what's up, you would have to cut my head off and put it in the oven. My wife can always make me laugh. Have a nice day, I told her with a chuckle. I love you. My colleagues have described me as a person of, a, of above average intelligence with a gifted memory, streetwise, and blessed with the ability to change my behavior like a chameleon. In police uniform and the precarious days before bulletproof vests, I got drug addicts to inform on their dealers and captured a fleeing armed robber. In a coat and tie as polite as could be, I gained confessions of theft from elected officials, a sheriff, a state legislator, and more than one county councilman. Calm and collected, I pretended to take bribes from a Baltimore sheriff and caught it on audio tape. I turned the filthy job of sifting through trash for evidence into an art form. As a deep covert working the sleaziest block of Baltimore, I grew long hair with a Fu Manchu mustache and spoke a dialect called Baltimoreese to earn the trust of strip club owners, prostitutes, drug addicts, and outlaw bikers. Throughout my career, I was honored to serve my city and my state 
as an honest police officer and investigator working alongside many other principled cops. I am equally as proud to have survived and outsmarted the many corrupt, racist, and inept cops I met along the way who tried their damnedest to prevent me from doing my job. <clears throat> For years, I kept a little figurine of the lion from The Wizard of Oz. It reminded me that it takes courage to do the right thing. <clears throat> During all my dangerous years in law enforcement, I had no fear. The only thing I ever feared was blindness. I knew since I was a child that I would one day go blind. There were so many cruel reminders in the decades that followed. The blurred and cloudy vision, the early cataracts, 15 surgeries, and each dreaded detached retina moving like a black curtain across each eye, shutting me off from the glorious world of sight. Blindness stripped away my independence one agonizing step at a time, my last trash rip, my last raid on a suspect's home, my ability to drive to watch a movie. I would never again see my wife's beautiful face, never watch my grandchildren grow. Some people ask, why me? I ask, why not me? No one is immune to tragedy, but I am a man who learned to turn misfortune into opportunity. When I was going blind and could no longer carry a firearm, I found a career investigating political corruption and became a lawman without a gun. I am, in fact, a lucky man, forever grateful to the many talented doctors <coughs> who kept me sane for years. I even had a devoted boss who found me a talking, compu talking computer and kept me in my job after a government doctor tried to violate my rights as a disabled worker and end my career. Cutting my career short because of my disability would have been especially cruel for a workaholic like me. Still, there were parts of the job I had to give up. As a blind criminal investigator, arrayed with a search and seizure warrant was the investigative tool I missed most. In the years when I can see it was my favorite day of criminal investigation, coming months after we painstakingly collected other evidence, subpoenaed bank records, informant interviews, wiretapped phone conversations, evidence of secret business dealings found in a suspect's trash, irregularities in campaign finance records, and financial disclosure statements signed by elected officials under penalty of perjury. Before I went blind, I led many successful raids that gathered thousands of dollars in stolen cash, guns and drugs, valuable photo equipment, hundreds of illegal gambling machines, even sticks of dynamite. I investigated and helped prosecutors win convictions of business owners and bureaucrats who stole millions from the government and elected officials who took bribes and raided their campaign accounts. Once, we caught Baltimore's third highest elected official siphoning tax dollars through a fictitious employee. On this day, June 17, 2008 though, the stakes were even higher because of the prominent person we were investigating. Instead of being on the scene, I would be in the office monitoring events by phone. Investigator John Pollux would lead the raid in my absence. John and I had known each other for almost 30 years. Going back to our days in the police department, he had been an investigator for the Maryland Prosecutor's Office for more than a decade. There was no one I trusted more than John to be my eyes. As we gathered in the state prosecutor's conference room early in the investigation, I made it clear to the staff the importance of this case. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no room for a single mistake, I told them. 
If we are right, no one can hurt us. If we are wrong, no one can save us. Now, two years later, we were ready for the final search. Later, he would describe the scene to me in copious detail. A little after 6 a.m., John led a small team of investigators and state troopers to the scene of the raid on a quiet street in West Baltimore. Before he knocked, John could not help noticing the red front door with a large decorative oval window. This is a really nice door, he thought. He knocked hard. A few minutes went by before it opened. The mayor of Baltimore, Sheila Dixon, stood in a plain nightgown. I have a search warrant for your house, he said. You're not coming in here this time of the morning, the mayor told him. She slammed the door. <laughs> a few minutes later, she reappeared. I have a search warrant, John repeated. We have to come in one way or the other. I need an hour, said the mayor. John knew a person could destroy a lot of evidence in an hour. No, he told her. Again, she slammed the door. John called me with the bad news. Take the door down if you have to, I told him, raising my voice. John hesitated. This door, he thought, is almost too nice. What if, what if it was a gift from a developer doing business with the city who might be under investigation, he thought. I can't destroy evidence. The door opened again. Mayor Dixon handed John a cell phone. Hello, Dale, said John, before he heard a voice on the line. What do you have, said Dale Kelderman, a well-known white-collar criminal defense lawyer. John told him about the warrant and handed the, pho handed the phone back to the mayor so Kelberman could tell his client she had no choice. Finally, the mayor stood back. In went the team to search for evidence of theft, embezzlement, and misconduct in office. The list of items they were looking for filled 10 pages of our search and seizure warrant. A burnt umber mink coat jacket, a coat of Persian lamb and mink, an Italian leather coat, Giorgio Armani shoes and Jimmy Choo sandals, an Xbox, video games, and many gift cards purchased by developers doing business with the city. Here I was, overseeing one of the most significant investigations of my career. If anything went wrong, we would face catastrophic political fallout. Not to be part of every single step was frustrating. I felt very, very cheated. Still, I knew we were prepared and the raid would go well. Once inside, John called to tell me the mayor had left the house with her gym bag and that the search had begun. I loosened my red power tie in the darkness. Here we go, I said to myself. Good evening, everyone. I'm Jim Cabasis, and delighted to be here. Um, I can remember when I was so very young, maybe four or five, my father explained to me that if a person learns to read, the world is at his or her feet for reasons that you can expand across the entire world, even out of space. Um, so I'm delighted that um, Maryland Pratt Library has given us this opportunity. The other thing, you know, this universal symbol of blindness, uh, a white cane, um, don't let it bother you in any way. It, it certainly doesn't bother me. As Joan said, the only thing I ever feared was blindness. I came to that point in life, quite frankly, I thought I was ready to deal with it, but I don't think anyone can actually prepare themselves 
to walk in a world of total darkness. It requires love from family and friends and the individual who is in the challenge community has to clean up the mess, whether the mess was created by the person or someone else. It's still my mess. And um, fortunately, uh, once again, back to my father, who was my best friend and uh, certainly my best advisor, um, he made it known to both my sister and I that the word acquiesce simply is not part of the Cabezas lexicon. You keep punch, punch, punching, punching, and you never stop. You don't throw in the towel. Now, when Joan and I first started talking about this book, and just uh, very preliminarily, um, she said, yeah, I, I think your history of, in law enforcement would be of interest to readers. There is so much to be told here. But in my mind, what I wanted to be crystal clear was for those who do live in the challenge community, they should never give up. You're going to have to adjust, you're going to have to modify, but if you keep doing that to adjust, you stay in Main Street society and you keep your self-respect. Uh, quite frankly, when I first became blind to the point where I couldn't drive anymore, that was in 1997, I felt embarrassed. I mean, I, I knew it wasn't my fault, but that was the negative feeling of how challenged this particular uh, problem is of, of blindness. Uh, but there are ways around it. Uh, Joan mentioned that I would prepare for her um, chapters, she would review it, then she would tear it apart, then she would review it, then she'd tear it apart. <laughs> she was truly my rudder, but the reason I was able to do that is um, some brilliant engineer uh, developed a software entitled, it's an acronym, um, it's called JAWS. And JAWS reads the printed word on my computer. And through a series of keystrokes, there isn't anything I can't digest. So, um, you wanted me to start with a question? Yes. Okay. Why don't you tell them about your first night as a police officer in the winter of, was it 1971? Tell them about that first night and what that was like. Yeah, I was so enthusiastic about being a police officer. Um, I think I was dressed about 9 o'clock and ready to go. I didn't have to be at the station house, the Eastern, until 11.30. I was that enthusiastic. And I thought it was going to be a camaraderie there. Immediately that the older veterans would sort of take me into their protective cocoon and show me the way. That is not how it happened at all. It didn't take long for a veteran to say to me, come here, kid. And he said, look, you know all those people out there? They're your enemies. Don't let them fool you. They'll stab you in the back just as soon as you give them the opportunity. The only people you can trust is us. 
Well, what that immediately creates is this culture of isolation. So, because I was assigned to a foot post, and that's consistent with being a rookie, it was about a mile and maybe a mile and three quarters from the station house to the corner of North and Greenmount. Um, I didn't know how I was going to get there. Finally, my sergeant uh, called me over and he said, did they ask you, teach you how to ask a question in that academy? I said, yes, sir. He said, it says here you're the valedictorian. You've got any idea how you're going to get to North and Greenmount? And I said, I'm going to need a ride. He said, come here. So he took me into the sector room and told me that where North and Greenmount was and that the two-man shotgun car would take me there. The crime was so high that there was a foot post, there was 311 car, that was the two-man shotgun car. Explain to them why it's called a shotgun car. It has a shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, and then um, between 7 and 3 p.m., another shotgun car with two people overlapped all of that. The crime was so very bad. The distrust of police was absolutely horrible, and that was a product of how the police, or was a product because of how the police treated its citizens. So I finally locate the person. I'm saying, who's going to be, you know, operating car 311, 311? And the guy said, come on, just get in the back. No hello, no nothing. I would at least thought someone would say, hey, your first night, you know, we join you, you know, we'll make sure we have your back. We're all friends here. They did not say one word. I thought, gee, this doesn't seem to me that being ostracized is the way to get the team together. So they dropped me off. It was bitter cold, and the street was all but deserted. So from the 1800 block of Greenman Avenue up to the 24th, you know, it's about uh, five blocks. So I thought the first thing I should do is walk the beat. Well, what I counted was a pharmacy that sold beer and wine. There was a Chinese carryout. There was a bar that had jazz music. There was another bar um, named Angelo's. There was a bar at the corner of North and Greenmount called Dickler's. And there was a bar called Blue Front, and the last one was Mickey Griffin's. So I'm thinking, my God, how much do these people drink? <laughs> when you think about all these bars, you know. So as I'm going up and down the street, I would occasionally see the 311 car ride by, and I thought, this is great. You know, somebody's going to get me a cup of coffee. They just kept going. So I began thinking, well, what did they teach us in the police academy? 
Well, one of the theories is known as omnipresence, which simply translates to the more you are publicly seen in uniform, that will reduce the opportunity for a person to think they can get away with a crime. That one was simple. So the model of most police departments is to protect and to serve. Well, during the six months I was in the police academy, nobody gave us any indication of what it would be to serve the community. Well, by the end of the shift, I had made the decision that to serve a community meant that to the extent possible, I should become part of their community. I was thinking about this little swath of land that I was responsible for. I wanted to find out as much about the people so that I could become almost as a referral person. So if there was a mailbox that wasn't um, opening and closing the right way, well, call postal inspector. If the light isn't flashing, a stop sign's down, call the Department of Transportation. Or if a sewer hall is backed up, call the uh, Department of Public Works, all to improve the quality of living there. So, as time moved on... Can I stop you for one second? Could you go back and talk about your first night when you went into the tavern and the owner mentioned where your partner Oh, were? yes. Tell that story, please. Mm -hmm. One of the bars was called Blue Front. All the other bars were closed except for um, um, Dixler's Bar. Um, oh, let me tell you. Yep. When I first walked into Dickler's Bar, um, the barmaid came to what would have been the back of the bar and said, we didn't call you. And I said, I know, I just stopped in to make a business check to say hello and introduce myself. She put her hands to her side and she says, we don't like police around here. We don't want you here. All right, I'm thinking something's wrong. So out the door I went. Then I went up to Blue Front. When I opened the door, I was surprised to see that the owner was a white guy. And I introduced myself. And he said, look, I'm a jack of all trades here. You know, the bottle washer all the other stuff that goes with it. I'm the owner. I cook food, I pen bar, and right now I'm cleaning the bar for tomorrow, and he said, I'll be right back. When he returned, he had a bucket and a mop, and said to me, well, how about a shot of anything? I'll make you a double, get some of the chill off. And I said to him, oh no, sir, I'm on duty. And he said, how long have you been working? <laughs> I said, today's my first day. <laughs> he said, well, look, you know, the other guys, you know, they have here, 311, uh, he said, they're back there sleeping. They've had their double shots. In fact, they had three double shots. So I thought, this can't be right. So after I said goodbye, I quietly walked up against the side of the bar, took my hat off over, and just took a peek. Sure enough, they were slumped over, sound asleep. There goes omnipresence. <laughs> you know, they're in 
what they called, and I had asked the bar owner, he said, you know, they're in a hole. And I said, I don't know what that means. He said, the hole means police officers put themselves in a situation where they cannot be seen by the public. For instance, he said, you know, in the park down here, uh, John L. Booth is buried there. A lot of them fell in there because that's a big hole. A lot of people, you know, and I said, I think I got that. Tell, um, tell them a little about each of those men who were sleeping in that car, what you later learned about each of them. Yeah. One of them was a, a very well-built gentleman. Um, I used to call him El Tigre, meaning the tiger. He sort of had this walk of confidence to him. Well, some months later, I learned that he had quit the police department. And I was thinking to myself, gee, why would anybody quit so early? And what I learned was that during the 12 to 8 shift, he was operating the two-man car 311. He noticed a Cadillac. Back then, they used to have these large white tires. They're, they were called gangster white walls. And they also had what they called a coach light, which was at the very top of the roof and the, to the very front. That indicated that they were drug dealers. And then what really sensed it for him, he saw it was a New York plate. So he pulled the guy over. And uh, as he starts reaching, the driver starts reaching for his license and registration. He said, I want to see that. Get out of here. Come on. Get open that trunk. So there were two duffel bags there. One was heavier than the other. And he opened the one that was less heavy, 30000 in cash. The other bag contained three kilos of heroin. He then sipped the bag with all the money, put it on his shoulder, shut the trunk. He said, that's what it costs you to stay out of jail tonight. And he stole the money. Um, as I say, it wasn't long after that he resigned. Talk about the other guy. Yeah. The other guy um, was so small in stature, uh, he used to wear these cowboy boots. And his feet were so small that everybody thought he had to go to a boy's shoe store. <laughs> yeah. In the book, we call him Cowboy Boots because, you know, he, he's doing anything to try to make himself look bigger. He was also a very, very biased and prejudiced police officer. Also thought he was a coward, and I will tell you why. So... One day, I was put in the car 311, and Cowboy Boots was driving. And what he would do, this was daytime, the street just north of North Avenue is Worsley Avenue, I mean Worsley Street. It's hardly any bigger than an alley. And what he would do, 
he would turn out in that one-way street, head towards Greenman Avenue off of Barclay, and park just so there was enough room for a person to be able to walk in front of the car without being hit on Greenman. As the people were walking, regardless of age, he would gun that engine. And of course, they jumped in fright, and he would break out laughing. So my God, why did you do that? And he said, because there, use the N-word. I said, I hate that word. It hurts my ears. He said, oh, you'll learn. You'll learn. <laughs> All right. Thanks, I never did. You know, according to his <laughs> standards, no one plays it. Anyway, on another day, um, this was a Sunday. The street was very, very quiet. And we were on Boone Street, which is, you never heard of of any crime on that street. Um, the people were very careful to wash their model steps. Um, they had old tires which were painted in red, white, and blue, and then they would use that tire as a flower pot. So there's a young man, probably 14 or 15, jaywalking, which is the standard in African-American economically depressed neighborhoods. So he beats the horn and waves him over. He's winding down his window and he says, hey boy, you know what that black shit is on my car? No sir, it's slow walking ends. That's how bad the prejudice was. In another situation, I heard um, 311 call for a wagon. When I got there, the man was handcuffed behind his back. His face was facing the curb, and there was blood pulling. And those two police officers were ticking and hitting him with nightsticks. So I yelled, stop that, stop that. They were ignoring me, so I tried to throw myself on top of him so he could be shielded from all these brutals. I mean, what's the word for them? Uh, not just hostile, but savage individuals. Well, they picked me up, and the word they said to me is, you ever do that again, you will never, ever get back up. You're going to be out here totally, totally by yourself. Okay. So. Can I move ahead to the sure. block? Talk, why don't you talk a little bit about... Uh, Order? Yeah, here's... Here, let me get it. There, got it? Um, this is really a full bottle of vodka, but you don't know. <laughs> so why don't you talk a little bit about what it was like to be asked to go become a deep covert and yeah. how that felt? Yeah, what happens in late 1974, the police commissioner then, who was Donald D. Pomelo, had a meeting with FBI agents from the Baltimore office. The agents told him that they had come up with excuse me, intelligence information that said that more than probably the Bruno Mafia crime family in Philadelphia was now in our city. 
So Pomerleau decided we need to either say that's accurate or it's inaccurate. And so I received an assignment to work a deep, deep covert job. I resigned on paper. They put out a story that, hey, this guy lost his job because he's corrupt. And I was directed to work the red light district, which is Baltimore's block. At that time, it consisted of the 300, 400, and 500 block of East Baltimore Street. Now it's been condensed to the 400 block, and I think there are only about 10 bars that are open there. So my assignment was you are going to work without a gun. You're not going to have any backup. You're not going to be wearing a body wire. So if you think about that famous movie, Donnie Brasco, <coughs> who went under for the FBI, when he did it, he had backup and he had a body wire. And maybe in a way, that was good because I told myself, I've always relied upon my instinct, that I don't want to get myself in any situation in which I can't get out. So I told myself, I have to take things slowly, very, very slowly, or they're going to figure out that I'm an undercover guy. Unfortunately, my handler, there were only four people in a police department that knew what I was doing. My handler, the director of intelligence, the police commissioner, and me. And he was horrible. I said to him, we call him Crab Cake, uh, uh, Sergeant Crab in the book. And that's sort of a whole funny story, but anyway. I said to him, well, what am I supposed to do? How am I going to get information? He said, oh, I just hang around the bars. I said, well, that's expensive. Are you going to front me money? Oh, no, you know, just every two weeks, uh, just write down what you spent. I said, well, do I just go in and start hanging around? Don't I need a cover story? Oh, you'll figure it out, don't worry about it. Have a crack cake. <laughs> so, you know, I thought about this. Um, what am I going to do to find out whether any members of the Bruno crime family are on the block? <coughs> Well, the first thing I did, I went to the Baltimore City Liquor Board and asked for a directory. The way the directories are listed, it's by blocks. So obviously, Baltimore was one of the first ones. And then they are listed by numbers, 405 North Baltimore Street, 408. And underneath that, it'll tell you the licensees. So one of the bars was called The Ritz. The owner was Samuel Munafo. He had a brother on the street. They called him Pepe, and um, Sam Munafo was known as Mutsi. Um, he had a bar. He had the Villanova bar. And as I kept looking, looking, there were more Italians there. Now, in the book, I'm very, very careful 
to cite the wonderful contributions that the um, Italian families have provided uh, for this country and beyond. And so, as I'm looking down, I saw now a name of a bar, the Block Show Bar, owned by Tommy Bruno. <coughs> I thought to myself, bingo. So, I created a storyline within my head that I would want to engage these people in conversation, but also didn't want to ask any questions because they would either conclude one or two things, that I was an informant or that I was an undercover cop. If they were going to make a conclusion, I was hoping that they would think I was an undercover cop because they wouldn't kill a cop. They would certainly kill an informant. So, um, the way I got started was, I wasn't very talkative. All my eyes were set on the stage. They had such interesting names, some of these dancers. Um, candy Bar, not a real name. Ginger Ale. <laughs> Misty Summers. London, <laughs> uh, Wendy Summers. Anyway, and the list goes on and on and on. And, um, so I had to buy drinks. Back then, a drink for a dancer was $10, and a beer was $2.50. I'm thinking to myself, I'm not going to last here long at those prices. But I didn't know how much the police department was willing to spend. So when I gave him my first expense list, it was like $250-some dollars. He said, oh my god, when am I going to pay you this? I said, well, how am I supposed to do that? That's your problem. It's not mine. But we'll pay you this this time, but make sure no bill ever comes more than $30. So, okay, another problem. So then I decided I will start driving a cab. That way I will pull the, cow, the cab out at 6 p.m., work a 12-hour shift, that means I could take the ladies home who were just finishing their shift at 8 o'clock, and then at 2 a.m. I would also be able to take those ladies home. So now when I started walking into the bars, I had this little tag that said cab driver. And no sooner one of the strippers would see me, oh, Jimmy, I'm over here, I'm over here, I'm over here. And uh, then I could say, you know, business is really horrible out there. I'm not getting any fares. And, you know, I can't buy a lot of drinks today. Um, but I got, that's how I was introduced to them and why there was an, an atmosphere of suspicion about so then still to the question, how am I going to find out about the Bruno crime family? So one day, I walked into the 408 club. And I had placed um, medical, you know, uh, surgical tape around my chin 
and across my nose. Now I knew the bartender by now, I knew his name was Dallas, and what I was trying to do was to identify who was the loan shark controlling shy locking on the block. So he said, what the hell happened to you? I said, my loan shark doesn't have a sense of humor. He said, go see Mutsi, tell him I sent you, you'll be okay. So now I knew Mutsi was the guy for that loan shark. And I used other techniques very similar to that to find out who were the biggest bookmakers. Um, back then, there were drugs on the block, but not what it is now. That 400 block is controlled by the blood scan. Um, they're selling inside and outside, and they're also providing most of the dancers, which means that when the dancers go in to work, they're selling product. So, um, after about three and a half years, and I had been asking my lieutenant, uh, he was no better than Sergeant Crabb, um, look, I, I gotta be surfaced. You know, I'm gonna take a sergeant's test. I don't wanna just be a detective all my life. He said, after the third time I asked him, and he's you know, cascading accolades. Oh, you've been so good, yada, 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 yada. I said, Lieutenant, I want to take that test. He said, where are we? No one will, will be able to recognize you. Uh, oh, this is even worse. Because if some police officer would have recognized me, they could have told anybody on the street. I mean, that was just absolutely crazy. Jim, can you tell them how you threatened them at the end to, to get you to resurface? What did you tell them what who I, you would tell? Yeah, at the time, there was a a crime reporter by the name of Roger Twig. I didn't know Roger, but I told my handler, hey, I know this reporter by the name of Roger Twig, and if I'm not surfaced in two weeks, I'm going to tell him of the assignment. I was in the next day. Uh, okay, so before we take questions, I thought maybe you could just tell them a little bit about how how you came to decide that your uh, office, the state prosecutor, should investigate Sheila Dixon when she was city council president? What gave you the idea? Mm -hmm. And then we'll open it to questions. You know, for investigators, always, um, the more information we have, the better we can make accurate decisions as to what to do. In my office, and I always told this to my subordinates, I had a a mantra of three prongs. First, we conduct an absolutely fair investigation abiding by both the state and federal constitution. We are going to prepare an investigative plan of what is the best way to get the best evidence to get to the truth. And that's what it's really all about, the truth whether it serves to inculpate or exculpate the subject of the investigation. And lastly, everyone should be very, very careful not to besmirch the reputation of the subject of the investigation. And I would tell them, look, this is not street corner society where unfortunately those people are of the opinion that jail is not an unexpected stop. You don't expect to go to jail. 
that's a whole other thing. Um, but when we started investigating Shira, back to the point of information, Doug Donovan, uh, an investigative reporter with the Baltimore Sun, had written a story. And the story was that a guy by the name of Clark had received over $600,000 of no-bid contracts to provide information technology services to the city council. But the thing that really caught my attention, he was also the treasurer for Sheila Dixit. So we actually, and that's, this is the way it typically is. You start small in investigations and then you build your way up to a crescendo, hopefully. Um, so we began doing an investigation of Dale Clark. He appeared to be living beyond his means because of what he was driving. There were some um, mobile and physical surveillance done of him. He was wearing Rolex watches, expensive cars, and we thought, I wonder if this guy's paying taxes. Well, in Maryland, in order to get someone's taxes, first you have to get the subpoenaed issue, and then you have to take that subpoena to a judge who will sign a court order directing either the individual's accountant or the comptroller's office to release the person's taxes. And with respect to that issue of, well, an accountant and a client has confidential privileged communications, not when it comes to the status. If there's a criminal investigation, they've lost that. Most people don't realize that. Anyway, what we found was that Dale had not paid any tax. So, that's all we need to do a certain seizure warrant. So when we hit him, we grabbed the computer. Once that computer was analyzed, we were stunned to learn that he had a duplicate live calendar, like on-time, online calendar of Sheila Dixon. Well, there we saw a trip to the Bahamas, and we saw a name, and we saw the name of a company. It was a major developer who owned Duracon. So what we did, we started asking, okay, this is a public record. Uh, we should be able to get this without any problems. And so we asked to get contracts that had been directed to Ron Lipscomb, who owned Doricon. He had gotten millions, millions of dollars with no bid contracts. There was no invitation to bid. There was no request to you know, submit a proposal. It was just all him. So then you take that and you look and you'll see an entry. The Bahamas and four other people are named. One of them is Ron. 
They stayed six days. They were there to celebrate her 50th birthday, and Lipscomb covered the cost of everything. In another situation, we learned, as a, as a result of reviewing the, con I mean, the calendar, that he had taken her to Chicago, where she spent $8,000 of his money shopping at the Miracle Mall here in Chicago. And so what we were doing was we had an, a whole large, large group of subpoenas. We got subpoenas from her financial disclosure statements. We found that she had not reported any of the conflicts, so we knew that should be a solid stand. Then we got her bank records and we would see cash infusions just under $10,000. There's a federal banking law that's called CTRs, cash transaction reports, which means that if it's over 10,000, you have to fill out a form for the bank. They were keeping it just under. So they call that structuring or laundering money. So that was another reason. Boy, this lady really got a lot of money. Why don't we open it up to questions now? Is that good? Anybody have any questions? When you were a, uh, a brand new officer walking foot patrol, did you have anything like a, thank you, did you have anything like a, a, a radio with you? Yes. So that you were in contact, uh, you weren't just out there alone? No, when I was working uniform, I had a radio. But I had nothing when I was working on the cover. Nothing. Hi. Do you wish that you had waited a year to write this book? I'm not sure how to answer that question. <laughs> and, and I have to say, um, I was really disheartened to, to read about what, what you were saying in the 70s about the dirty cops and how nothing changed with the um, gun trace task force. Like, nothing has changed. <coughs> Very disheartening. Yeah. The, um, obviously, I, I felt honored you know, to work with Joan. Uh, she was the rudder. You know, I will type this out, type this out. No, Jim. No, Jim. <laughs> That's not going to work. I'll type it out again. No, Jim. <laughs> so anyway, it was because of her personal training knowledge and experience that the book properly flows. For instance, I might have a chapter there that I had labeled eight and a title. Joan says, you're losing trans transition here. The reader's not gonna be able to follow what's going here. So let's move that chapter over here and let's replace this chapter which is where you were gonna put eight. And that's from her experience. But the, la the lady asked you if you wish you'd waited. Do you wish you could have written about Catherine Pugh? I assume that's your question. Um, He's already No, and you know, when we wrote the book, there was so much corruption already. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's shameful behavior, it really is. You know, um, good Lord. So, no, I thought I was duty-bound to file my complaint about Pew. You know, it was Luke Broadwater who broke the story on March 13th. On March the 15th, 
I was in the office of the state prosecutor, and then in less than four weeks, I forget the April date. Um, the FBI raid. Yes, yeah, and then her resignation. Yeah. Any other questions? Amy? Um, I also, uh, was quite disheartening at the end to, um, to see you reflect upon uh, the means of corruption that you experience and expose and to see what's going on now. Mm. So I hope, number one, that um, you'll give the new commissioner your book. And well, I'm if you were to meet him, what, what would you uh, like to say to him? If I were to meet Commissioner Harrison, what would you say? Oh, I've already written him a letter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what I have said to him that, you know, and I was going back to Bishop Robinson, if you don't inspect, don't expect. And I also said to him, and it's probably a pejorative, we probably didn't want to hear it, but I think it's accurate. If you look at the Baltimore City Police Department today and take it back to the 1970s when the FBI raided the Diamond Cap Company because they were paying off all those officers and supervisors to protect their gambling scheme, then the feds grabbed, I think, 14 more in 1975, compared to the gun task force. Then, add to that Sheila Dixon, add to that Nathaniel Oakes, and then add to that Catherine Pugh. And I said, your police department is still in the 20th century. They need a lot of work. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Jim and Joan, for sharing your expertise with us, and thank you all for sharing your evening with us. Thank you, and have a great night. Thank you, everyone. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.